In Psalm chapter 57, verse 2, we read this. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. What an amazing verse that evidently God has a purpose for us as children. You know, every once in a while, you're, when you're driving around town, you'll see a, a large yellow sign posted uh, that reads, Notice. Have you ever seen those things? If, if you live in the neighborhood where one of those signs is posted, you're going to get a letter um, from somebody, um, probably the city or county or somebody, and they're going to inform you of, of what the builder's plans are, the reason for that notice. And so you're going to receive a letter telling you exactly what's going to transpire and you can decide whether to make comment. Well, in your laps you have a book, it's called the Bible, and it is a letter from God to uh, enlighten our minds and hearts as to God's plans, future plans for you personally. And so it behooves us to open it regularly, to, to dig into it, to desire it, to apply it to our lives. This is God's letter to man and it reveals his purposes for, for me and for you. I don't know about you, but that is of interest to me. So Psalm 57.2, along with a host of other verses, indicate that, that God is up to something. What, what we're experiencing is not just some random uh, existence or activity from point to point. God is actually up to something. He's fulfilling his purposes in his people and for his people. And those purposes, praise God, are listed in this book for us as people. And so my goal today is to encourage you by telling you about God's purposes for you. And I've been praying this whole week, that, this last week, that you would be uh, attentive and that the Holy Spirit would remove distractions from your mind that might keep you from hearing what the Holy Spirit might have for you personally this morning that would be an encouragement to you, a strengthening to your heart that's required if we're going to live to the honor and glory of God, um, which is what we want as Christians, right? Uh, and we need this from God. We need his, his encouragement to, to be able to uh, work at our job faithfully, to be good husbands and wives and children and parents and so forth, and to be good with our money and to be good in our relationships. We need God and so this morning, I'm hoping that your heart will be encouraged. Uh, I hope that you will, your heart will be renewed in your interest in pursuing God with your whole heart. As, as we read here in verse 10 of this great chapter, with my whole heart I seek you. I, I want that to be your plea and your prayer uh, this morning. Justin just recited for us verse 32 through 40. And I had him start in verse 32 so you could, you could understand the, the uh, transition between this fourth stanza and the fifth stanza that we're just entering today. Um, I want you to, to be able to see the, the important connection there. And what we see in verse 32 is the author's acknowledgement of his personal need for an enlarged heart. You see that there. It says, I will run in the way of your commandments when, and I had you circle that verse last week, when you enlarge my heart. So our our ability to run in the way that God has for us is dependent upon his enlarging of our hearts. 
And not just a one-time event that takes place at regeneration, but ongoing daily throughout our Christian experience, we need that heart enlarged and strengthened and encouraged. So right after this acknowledgement and plea that God would enlarge his heart, he dives into the next stanza. And none of these things are uh, done in a haphazard manner. These, these, the, the order in which the Holy Spirit uh, arranged these verses are, are for a reason. I, when I was in seminary, my, my professor used to say, uh, there is always a reason why that verse is in that place. And this is the case here, as in every verse. Why did the Holy Spirit put this stanza right after the plea for an enlarged heart? And I'm going to tell you today so that you will know. So we have this plea for an enlarged heart. Then he starts the next stanza. It's the fifth stanza, and it is called the he. Uh, we would pronounce it he, but it's he. And it is the fifth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And an interesting side note might be uh, that each of these stanzas is titled with an, uh, a letter of the Hebrew alphabet so that the people who were originally memorizing it could memorize it more easily. All right, now, further assistance, every sentence in this stanza begins with that letter in Hebrew, not in English. Don't get confused. All right, so if you were reading your Hebrew Bible here this morning, you would see that every single sentence in this stanza starts with the letter He. And let me tell you about the letter He. The letter He is always used at the front of verbs to show cause. It's called a causal verb. It's, it, it shows uh, what God is up to, why he is up to it. Okay, so listen as I retranslate uh, with this idea in mind. Our English translations might be this. Cause me to learn. Cause me to have understanding. Cause me to walk. And this, what, what, what this does for us is it helps us realize that God is doing it. All right? It's not your brilliance. It's not your strength, it's not your maturity, it's God. Cause, God caused me to do and be. That's what I want you to see here. So what the author is doing here is he's seeking instruction. He, he's seeking guidance, he's seeking education. He's seeking divine education. So I want to take you into this text today and I want to point out the goal and method of divine instruction, okay? The goal, point one, the method, point two, of divine instruction. As we have been making our way through this psalm, we saw in the first stanza, the first eight verses, that God promises us happiness if we'll pursue holiness. So he lays a promise on the table that we all are interested in happiness. You want to be happy? We learned a while back that in order to be happy, true happiness, lasting happiness, satisfying happiness, we have to be in pursuit of holiness. That's what the first stanza taught us. Now, the, the second stanza, the author goes into how we can become holy through the intake of God's word. In order to be holy, you have to saturate your mind and heart with God's word. In fact, that could be really a theme of the entire chapter, as you will see, or as maybe you have seen. But the third stanza, what the author does here is helpful because he, he shows us that we're going to face struggles. If, if we want to pursue holiness, 
We're going we're gonna to be in opposition to the world every time. We're, if we're going to be uh, pursuing Christ, if we're going to be uh, loving God and loving people and obediently following him and his word, we're going we're gonna to encounter opposition, antagonism, you know, alienation, all these negative things that we want to naturally avoid. He's warning us that that's going to happen. All right, so you want happiness, you got to pursue holiness. You, you're, if you're going to be holy, if you're going to commit to that, you're going to encounter trouble. And then stanza four is more of the same. He kind of exposits stanza three in stanza four. But by the end of stanza four, down there in verse 30, we see something interesting. We see kind of a, a growing commitment and determination by the author to do these things. He, he's, he's designed, I mean, he's, he's determined to follow God's design. He's saying, I think it's worth it. Look at verse um, 30. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I'm going to just make it a matter of choice. Verse 31, I cling to your testimonies versus clinging to anything else in life. Verse 32, I will run. These are all three commitments that this guy has made, and the Holy Spirit wants us to make those same commitments. And then in verse 32, of course, he acknowledges his need for an enlarged heart to pull it all off. Uh, the only way I can do this, God, is if you enlarge my heart. And I think if you've been a Christian for very long, you would vouch for that, right? I mean, if you've lived any length of time as a believer, you've fallen on your face enough to know, unless God acts, we're in trouble. Right? Yes. So last week I spoke to you about this need of ours. We need an enlarged heart. We need God to, to be at work if we're going to experience this kind of victory uh, in our Christian experience. And I explained um, that the enlarged heart is something that happens at the moment of regeneration. That's the moment when the Holy Spirit surgically removes the, the spiritual heart of stone that we're born with and replaces it with a heart of flesh. So he takes out that hard heart, that calloused heart, that heart that has no interest in the things of God, pulls it out, puts in a heart of flesh that is receptive, pliant, interested in the things of God. That happens at regeneration. That's an enlarged heart that you receive. Now, from now on, once you receive that heart, the Holy Spirit exercises, strengthens it throughout your life. And here in this hey stanza, he tells us how he does that. How is he going to strengthen that heart that needs strengthening? How is he going to build you up in the faith? How is he going to make you grow strong and, and grow your roots deep in the things of God? Today, I want to show you how he's going to do that. Um, do you ever wonder why it is you started mourning over your sin, if you have? If you haven't, then you don't have a new heart, by the way. But if you, if you think about it, why did you start mourning over your sin and being concerned about it? Why all of a sudden did at some point in your life the gospel become attractive? Why did God become attractive to you? I'll tell you why. Because the Holy Spirit did heart surgery and replaced that rock-hard thing in there with a heart of flesh that's receptive to the God and, and his word. All of a sudden, God becomes interesting. The gospel becomes beautiful. I enjoy the fellowship of the saints. I want to find out what his will is for me. I, I open this thing from time to time. Why? Because I now, I now have a heart of flesh. That's why. 
So throughout the Christian life, God continues to build it up, strengthen it, and enlarge our already enlarged heart. Um, and this is what the psalmist is praying for in verse 32. And as I was studying this past week over this, I, I was getting to think about this, and I think, why? Why is God doing this? Um, what's his end goal? What's his purpose? To think back to um, Psalm 57.2. If God has a purpose, if God is actually has a plan, what is it for me? I've told you a few times that Psalm 119 is a poem about the Christian life. Uh, the, the author demonstrates how God's word is critical to every aspect of the Christian experience. If you try to go through the Christian life without God's word, you're in for a heap of trouble. And so it's important that it comes at you on every different angle. That's what Psalm 19 is about. So what is, what is the first goal of, of this divine education that we find ourselves in? If you're a Christian, you are in God's school of divine education. What's the first goal? Let me say this, to be like Jesus. That's the first goal. To become like Jesus. Just in this stanza, not going outside this stanza, just between verses 33 and 40, look at the shadows of Christ. Look at them with me. So we're going to see Jesus' character oozing through the words in this, stan in this stanza. Look at this. Give me understanding that I may keep your law, verse 34. How was Jesus' understanding? Let me say this, perfect. It was perfect. How was Jesus' obedience? Perfect. How was Jesus' walk? Faithful. Did he, was his heart inclined towards his heavenly father? Every minute. So we see Jesus right here, pictured in the perfection of these requests. And so the first, the first objective of, of God in his divine school is to become like Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. This is what God has planned for us. Paul said this in his letter to the Romans, chapter 8, for those whom he foreknew, he predestined, he planned, he's determined to conform us to the image of his son. This is what God has in mind for you. Are, are you uh, a believer? Have you embraced God in Christ? His plan is to make you into the image or a reflection of Christ. He, he, he has got this plan for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. Everyone who he has chosen from before the foundation of the world, everyone who embraces Jesus, it is God's intent to make them just like Jesus in flawless character. Receiving divine education will result in becoming kind, patient, wise, loving, just like Jesus. The longer you live, the more this happens if you're in Christ. Of course, the longer you live without Christ, the opposite of this happens. Our natural tendency is to grow in the direction of bitterness. But if Christ is your life, as Paul said to the Colossians, if Christ is your life, if you have an enlarged heart, the direction of your life is Christward, okay? 
And that doesn't mean you're, per you're perfect by any means. It just means the, the general trajectory of your life is Godward versus the opposite of that. So Romans 29 tells us that we are all being, as Christians, transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Why is God doing this? Um, besides making us nice people, is there more to it than that? Um, why, why do we all have to be like Jesus? You know, it, I think it would be nice if everybody was more kind, more loving, more patient, and so forth. But some would accuse us of, of saying that God is creating robots that way. You can see that, can't you? Um, why, why can't God just be content to let us be ourselves? And why can't God just value diversity? Uh, well, I hope, I hope you're beginning to see the point of Psalm 119 here a little bit. In ourselves, friends, we have a problem. It's called a fallen nature, right? Uh, we have a dysfunctional nature. It fell from where God intended it to be. Uh, and, and this dysfunctional nature creates all sorts of problems, doesn't it? Um, look in the mirror occasionally. Uh, look at your kids. Uh, pay attention to what your spouse is saying, and you'll see this. And it just happens. Um, but by way of an enlarged heart and divine education, we begin to grow and fulfill God's purposes that he intended for us. Um, but there's more to that. There's more that's on the table here. Uh, this physical life, as saturated as it is with difficulties and hardships and discouragement and confusion, if we will submerge, submerge ourselves in the word of God, um, God will be preparing us during this difficulty for an amazing life yet to come. Th this is a life with our perfect creator. And here's where this gets interesting. I'm going to ask you to think with me for just a moment in John 17. I have, I have them on the overhead for you, but if you want to look it up, you're welcome to do that also. John 17, verse 24, Jesus says this, Father... I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. Why? To see my glory is Jesus' prayer. Jesus wants you and me to see him in all his glory. Now, if I were to say that, <laughs> you'd probably leave the room. I just want you guys to show up and look at how awesome I am. Uh, this church wouldn't grow. Uh, normally. So why does Jesus say it and why can he get away with it? Well, I'm about to tell you. I want you to look, before I do, at verse 15 of John 17. I do not ask, Jesus is praying to his Father, that you take them, that's us, out of the world, but that you keep them here, but from the evil one. So, so God doesn't just want to get us to heaven. He wants to do something with us here on earth. In other words, there's an objective for your breathing here. Now, John 17, 24, again, Jesus prayed that we would one day be with him to see the fullness of his glory, but for now we need to remain on this earth as sojourners being sanctified, being changed into his likeness, being made ready, being prepared through divine education for the next chapter of our existence, which is going to be in the new heaven and new earth. Now, the goal of this divine instruction is to make us like Jesus, but it's not just for this earthly life, it's for also the life that follows. Some, some have said that this makes Jesus out to be an egotist or self-absorbed individual, 
because all he wants is a bunch of people who are just like him. This is what atheist and religion critic Richard Dawkins said. He wrote, God is obsessed with his own superiority and is out to make a name for himself. Uh, interesting comments coming from an atheist who doesn't believe God exists. You know, I stopped worrying about monsters under my, under my bed when I figured out they didn't exist. Evidently, we have atheists running around worried about God who doesn't exist in their minds. Daniel Dennett, also another atheist, said that God is nothing more than a superman who makes humans in his image like a toy maker creating dolls to look just like him. What's our only conclusion if we were to side with these guys? God is vain. And who wants to be around a vain God? Not me. And so we must conclude that this, this is not God's reason. If we believe the Bible, if we've embraced Christ, if we have been given a new heart, we must conclude that this is not God's reason for making us into little Jesus ones. So what is the reason of becoming like Jesus? And here's the second point on your outline. Joy. You got enough of that lately? How about some more? You know, it's interesting. We have a limit to most things, even good things. Um, you go out to eat at a good restaurant, there's a limit to how much you can take in. Not with joy. There's always room for more joy, isn't there? You know why? Because Jesus is infinite in joy. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the interesting thing is, he created us with the same capacity. And the reason you're not as joyful and happy as you should be or wish you were is because you're trying to get that joy from something that's not designed to give it to you. Right? So <clears throat> the second reason we are in this divine school of education is for our joy. Jesus is perfect in every way, including joy. And he says this in John 17, but now I am coming to you, that's Jesus coming to the Father, and these things I speak to the world, now listen, that they may have my joy fulfilled in them. An infinite supply of joy for people who have an infinite capacity to experience it. That's pretty good, isn't it? <laughs> See, it is, it is for our eternal fulfillment and joy that God makes us like Jesus. To, to be changed into the image of Jesus um, by way of divine instruct, instruction is an expression of God's kindness and love, not divine arrogance. He is remaking us into the image of Jesus for our everlasting joy. This is meant to last through eternity, and that's a long time, I hear. And this joy, friends, like I said, there's no, there's no limit to it. It's an increasing measure of joy. So our loving and perfect God created us to live in communion with him in eternal and perfect and ever-increasing joy. There are hints of this even in our mundane, sublunary Existence now, 
We have hints of these, these goals, right? Think with me. Food, leisure, hobbies, sex, beauty are all designed by God to woo us into his presence, to give us a hint of what's in store for us. We're not supposed to stop at the gifts, but we're supposed to proceed through the gift to the giver, where we'll find the source of all this. See, all this is given to us by God, and the eternal objective is this, to exuberantly enjoy him forever and ever and ever. I'd get tired of playing harps really quick, and I'd get tired of hearing them more quickly. <laughs> so I'm confident that harps are not going to be a part of the regimen for me personally. You may have to come up and correct me one day, but... You know, some have asked, if it's God's objective to, make, uh, to take us to heaven, to make us ultimately happy, why doesn't he just proceed with this now and, and you know, dispense with all the rest of this painful experience that we have? Why not start today? I mean, give me a new heart and get me to heaven. Because then we would lack the divine education. All right, and I'm going to explain to you here in a second why this divine education is so critically important. But Psalm 16:11 says, "You've made known for me the path of life; in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore." Get me to that spot, you might say. Um, let me get back to that. I want to cover something else here, real quickly. John 15:11. In case you're in case you're one that thinks that these things are reserved for the sweet by and by. And this kind of joy isn't intended by God to be experienced now. I want you to listen closely to what Jesus said. 1511, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy will be full. He was speaking about the present tense. All right. He didn't expect us to wait for this joy to, to just, you know, someday... Think of it in that sense. You know, he's speaking about a joy that accompanies pain and accompanies grief and accompanies difficulty. And in spite of all those things, the joy remains solid. So what is the goal of our divine education? To become like Jesus in character and joy now. But it's also for the glory of God. How does our transformation bring glory to God? This is easy. Listen, this is easy. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Paul tells us that whatever we do in word or deed, do all the glory of God, but we got a problem, don't we? got this fallen nature we're dealing with. And it makes us um, unable to glorify God in all we do. Um, we're fallen creatures, and in ourselves just can't do it. Even after we received an enlarged heart, we can't do it. Okay, so here's where the glory of God comes in. Um, we are told that without faith it's impossible to please God, right? Hebrews 6, 11, 6. Um, in Ephesians 2, we are told, verse 9, where faith comes from. Do you, do you muster up faith in your heart? Where does faith come from? It is a gift of God. 
So the only way that you are able to proceed in Christ-likeness, to grow in faith, to become more like Jesus, is if God makes it happen. And so who gets the glory? You? No. God gets the glory, which is exactly what it should be. <laughs> we see this throughout Scripture. 1 Corinthians 1.30, for example, we read this, and because of him, who? God. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. It's not because you're so brilliant. It's not because, you know, God has favor on America. It's because God did it for you. And what did he do? The verse continues. From God we receive righteousness, sanctification, and redemption as a gift. This is what Paul told the Philippians also. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will complete it. Who began the work? Who's going to complete it? God. That's who. Now, let's look at the method. The method of divine education. I'm going to, and you'll, you'll, you, those of you who are waiting for me to answer that question I asked a second ago are about to get it answered. All right? Verses, let me, let me read for you these verses, verses uh, 33 through 37. And I want you to pay attention to how God's going to make this work, how he's going to make it happen. Remember, it's, we're talking about a divine education. Teach me, there's a key word, I would think. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep them to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart uh, to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. All right, so there we have a description of the college courses that you're going to be, that you are enrolled in if you know Christ. All right? <clears throat> How's God going to do this? How's he going to educate us? What's his strategy and plan? Now, listen to me. If you're a Christian and you're discouraged with your progress in faith, and I, I know enough of you and I know myself well enough to know that that happens, right? You, it's, watching yourself grow spiritually is like watching the grass grow, isn't it? It's like, come on, right? Um, but we are told, and I just read to you, that whatever God begins, he completes. Whatever he does, he's faithful to do it. And so we can, be, we can be certain that there's no chance of failure in you becoming like Jesus. There's no chance of failure. I used to uh, blame my poor math skills on my high school teacher. And I still think I'm right. But we will never have that excuse in our sanctification. He who began a good work in you will do what? Complete it. Complete it. Now, let's jump back into John 17, verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So Jesus prayed here that God would leave us here even after we received our enlarged new heart and that he would protect us during the process. The reason he leaves us on this planet under his protection is to make us fit for heaven. We may or may not be the, the ideal Christian and the perfect spouse or the parent or, or child, or etc. But one thing is for sure, when we see Jesus, we'll be ready to do so. Okay? The Puritans used to talk about this idea of being 
fit for heaven quite a bit. And John Owen, who was one of them, said this, We are no more fit for heaven when we first come to Christ than a deep sea fish is fit for life on the sun. You can see the picture, can't you? That's exactly, if not worse, what would happen if you were transported immediately upon conversion into the presence of Christ. Think about the Apostle John, all right? He walked with Christ himself for three years, communed with Christ faithfully for the rest of his adult life and died somewhere in his late 90s. And yet when he saw Jesus uh, in the Revelation, what did he do? Hey, old buddy, it's been a long time. No, what did he do? He fell on his face as though dead. And this is a guy who has been walking with Christ faithfully. Now, you want to, might want to rethink about your desire to go directly to heaven after conversion. Right? Okay, I'll be patiently educated, is what our attitude should be. Joyfully instructed. But this is the case. You will be ready to see Jesus when the time comes. So, God uses all the events of the Christian life to accomplish his purposes. He uses failure, success, hardship, sin, victory over sin, family, church, health, sickness, all to make us like Jesus. To, to make us more fit for heaven, to live in the presence of a perfect holy God for eternity. We're, one of our favorite verses is Romans 8.28, right? We could probably all quote that, right? We, this is God's promise to us that all things work together for good. And it is true. But we need to take in consideration the very next sentence out of Paul's pen. What are the good things he's talking about? Verse 29 says, being conformed to the image of Christ. That's what's good. Good isn't you getting a raise. Good isn't you getting a better job. Good isn't you getting a bigger house, a bigger blah, blah, blah. Good is becoming like Jesus in Paul's mind. That's what's good. All things, hard, easy, good, bad, difficult, all work in God's scheme to make us like Jesus. He has orchestrated the entire thing from beginning to end. And you know one of the best ways he does this? By your submersion in the word of God. Remember what Jesus said in that same prayer in John 17? How is this going to happen? Jesus said, Father, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. The only way you become like Jesus, if you're saturated in his word. And so if you ignore his word, what's the likelihood of you becoming more like Jesus today? This is also what's said, one of our favorite verses here is 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into his image. So we have this exposure to the glory of Jesus, to the glory of Christ, and the more exposed we are to that glory, the more we become like him. Which is one of the ways, one of the reasons why Jesus says, I want them in my presence one day. I want them to see my glory. So they'll be fully transformed, fully experiencing his joy. But for now... The, the truth is the same. Being exposed to the glory of Christ, and where do we find that most? In Scripture, 
we are transformed into his likeness. That's such a, an encouragement to open the book, isn't it? So seeing Jesus causes us to be like him. This is one of our, our great desires, whether or not you can verbalize it, is to become like Jesus. The Apostle John said this, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but, what we, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we'll see him as he is. Sight of Jesus changes people. Jesus is the primary instructor in the divine school of education. And whether we see him face to face in glory or see him on the pages of scripture, we become more and more like him. This is God's intent. This is God's design. This is God's education. This is how you get a divine PhD, right? This is it. Now, I want, you, I want to direct your, your attention to these verses here in the Hay stanza that we've entered into now. I want, I want to see that there are some specific prerequisites or, or courses of study that you are enrolled in as a believer, all right? The first is this, it's, it's in verse 34, and it's the, the course title is The Mind, and the course description is a focus on understanding. Now, he prays, give me understanding. So the author knows that to receive any kind of divine instruction, the mind must, must be engaged. I didn't know if you picked up on this in school, but unless your mind is engaged, you don't learn much. If you spend all your time daydreaming, you really flunk a lot of tests. So the, the, the first class is to teach us how to engage your minds. Be focused. Without understanding, obedience is almost impossible. So you, you may remember when you were in school and the teacher would assign busy work and everybody was grumbling about it because everybody knew it was busy work, including the teacher. Um, and the reason it was so frustrating is there was no reason for it. The teacher needed to go make a phone call, and so they'd, you know, give you a bunch of assignments. Get in groups and go through these studies, uh, you know, that kind of thing. But he says here, give me understanding. Look at the verse. Why? So I may observe, which means obey, it with my whole heart. The only way, way you're going to engage your whole heart in the pursuit of God is if you understand it, if you know the point. The reason that you can continue through hard times is if you know the point. The reason you can go to a dentist and sit there and be tortured for an hour is because you know the point. He's going to fix something. As Paul enters the application portion of the book of Romans. Do you remember the first thing he identified that needs to happen? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by how? Renewing the mind. You have to focus on understanding. And that is what this particular class in God's divine school teaches. And by the way, we're going to back up as we have been doing, which is our practice, uh, and, and pick these things off in more detail in the weeks to come. So don't feel like you have to pick it all up right now because I'm not sharing it all right now. If you could do that, that'd be amazing. 
But uh, you don't have to worry about that. I'm going to come back and, and unpack this more clearly. But what I'm trying to say to you is, is that understanding makes application possible in your understanding of Scripture. So I would, I would say consider this. If there was a midterm exam given in this, in this class on, on the mind, how would you do? A, B, C, D, F. Um, let's look at the second class in verse 35. What's that verse say? Lead me in the path. Now, this class is called the feet, and it's a focus on imitation. Lead me in the path. We're to do some following. Imitation. Now, if we're going to follow the right path, we need a guide, and that guide in life, of course, is the Holy Spirit. Uh, but additionally, there's more to this verse than what first meets the eye. And in, as you look at the original language, you discover that the word path is from the root word to tread and means the well-trodden way. Do you know how paths become well-trodden? People walk on them, all right? Someone's gone down that path before you, which is the point of Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, people who have gone before us, let's do what they did and throw off every weight and sin. Follow their lead. Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. Right? This, isn't, this is not a 201 level or a 301 level. This is 101. Follow the guy in front of you. Follow the lead of that person who has instructed you in Christ. Follow the lead of these great men, these gifts to the church who have written and teaching us how to walk with Christ faithfully. A side note here, those of you who are, who are uh, going north in age and uh, <laughs> you guys need to know how important your life is. To everybody in the room, to your grandkids, your great-grandkids, finishing strong is critical. To not have that is lethal. So your, your faithful, consistent, biblical pursuit of holiness is there's nothing more important. And, and it's not for your own well-being. It's for the good of the church. The third class that you'll be instructed in is found in verse 36. It's the class, the title is the heart. It's a class on the heart. And it's a focus on desire. Friends, if we're going to if we're going to progress in our spiritual education, we need to want it. You know, there's nothing more frustrating to a teacher than to try to teach students who don't care. That's very frustrating. Um, so we need to understand that the heart, which is the focus of verse 36, is the seat of motivation. We must want this. And this particular class is going to teach you how to want. 
It's going to convince you that what the world offers and what you think you want really is disappointing. And what you truly want and need is what's being offered by Christ in his word through his church. It's a focus on desire. It's, it's, it's being able to, to experience what the author here is, is pleading with in verse 5 and 10 and other places. Oh, that my ways were steadfast. Verse 10, with my whole heart I seek you. That's, that's the idea there. How much do you want it? And again, if you were taking a midterm test, what would you score on that test? How deeply do you want the things of God? Or is this the third or fourth thing on your weekly agenda? And then the final class that this text teaches is the fourth class, and it's called The Eyes. And the course description is called A Focus on Focus. We focused on the feet. We focused on the heart. Now the Holy Spirit wants us to focus on focus. How do you actually focus on something? See, our, our eyes are the source of many problems, right? With our eyes, we covet. With our eyes, we, we, we are drawn away from God. And so the divine education is going to teach us to focus on the things of God. When, when we lose focus, we get into trouble. And so the poet clearly understands that in comparison to Scripture, all other things in life are a distraction and worthless. Do you see that there? Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. Focus on the number one thing. There's only one thing that's important in life. Not two, not three, one. And you've heard it this morning. You will be trained by the Holy Spirit through the Word of God to focus on what's important and not get so easily distracted. Friends, we have a faithful, divine instructor who is committed to completing your education. When it is time, you will be ready to see Jesus, and our instructor will make certain of it. And so as you go through all the difficult things that you're faced with, as you go through all the challenges of, of relationships and, and finances and, and whatever it is you want to put on that list, keep in mind that God is up to something in your mind and heart. He has a plan and a purpose that he will complete and fulfill. And he says these kind of things to us in Scripture. Hebrews 10, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? Because he who promised is faithful. He's going to do it, which is what Paul said to the Thessalonian church. He who calls you is faithful, he will do it. Friends, we, we, we've got a good situation on our hands, right? Uh, we have a God who's given us a new heart. We have a God who's promised to exercise that heart. He is putting us into a school uh, to train us in godliness so that we can be like Jesus and enjoy him and each other forever and ever and ever. It's a really good deal that we have here. And, and we just need to understand that, that this light and momentary trial is light and momentary. And God is up to something. And we can thank and praise him for it. Let's do that now together. Lord Jesus, as we conclude our time together, we acknowledge to you and the Holy Spirit that 
Uh, without you, we can do nothing. Our desperate need for you to do everything uh, is clearly on the table in front of us. We uh, just acknowledge that. We embrace every good gift that you direct our way. We want to be uh, faithful in exercising those things that you're uh, giving to us. Um, and just ask that you would do that to, uh, with us and through us and to us. God, for your word, we, we praise you. For your spirit, we praise you. For your church, we praise you. Now as we enter into the Lord's Supper, we praise you. Uh, we are reminded by the bread and cup of your broken body and spilt blood. We thank you for these elements that draw us in to Christ and nourish us and build up our heart so that we can walk faithfully in newness of life. God, do this for these people in this room now as they prepare their hearts to participate in this drama ordained by Christ for the good of his church. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.